Welcome. Today we'll be talking to estate planning attorney Matthew Bogan about special needs trusts. This is a primer, so if you don't know very much about special needs trusts, you're in the right place. We'll have later videos where we do a deeper dive, but today's meant to be more of an introduction. And with that, to get started, we're just going to have Matt introduce himself and talk a little bit about his practice. Thanks. So I practice in Maryland, Virginia, in the District of Columbia. And I have been working with families uh, with special needs members for longer than I can remember. I think it's important to help. As you know, these people have a tough time and it's important to be as helpful as possible. And in full disclaimer, Matt, you helped me establish both my first and third party trusts. And I just want to make sure people know that we have done business together and I'm a little biased. Well, we have done, and I'm a little biased about you, so that works out. <laughs> so, Matt, would you mind just talking in, in very high level, what is a special needs trust? Sure. Well, leaving aside what a trust is for a second, people with special needs often need to qualify for means-tested governmental benefits. And the first one of those is SSI, Supplemental Security Income. And that has a means test where the applicant can't have more than $2,000 in his or her own available assets. So what the special needs trust does is allow parents and others to provide resources to help the special needs person in all kinds of ways while still not running afoul of the means test for SSI. 39 states in the District of Columbia use the SSI test for uh, other means-tested governmental benefits. So it's really important. A trust is just a legal organization, and there's three roles. There's the person or people who set it up, and in some parts, they're called the grantors. In some parts of the country, they're called uh, trustors or settlers. The title is immaterial. All that person's role is is to set up the trust. Then there's the beneficiary, who's the person with special needs. And then there's the trustee who's either the a person or an institution that manages the trust for the beneficiary's benefit. Awesome. And is there is there something people should be aware of? Because I know a lot of people will try to use tools like NOLO or something else to save costs. And where where I'm what I'm afraid of is the language isn't going to be correct when you do a special needs trust because it's not the same as a as a regular trust. Right. So the key is that the beneficiary can really have no control. And very often I see documents from people who come to me who've had a full set of wills and other things done, and they'll have a trust for their special needs child that either gives the child the right to withdraw some money at a certain age or ends at a certain age. And that all just causes a real problem. Another problem I've heard families getting in trouble with is they'll be using their trusts to pay for housing or food, right? And that that can, that turns around and has trouble with social security or could. Well, could. Okay. So the rule is that social security can deem that in-kind support and reduce the SSI benefit dollar for dollar for in-kind support. Depending on the situation, I am of two minds on that. The important thing is to maintain the eligibility. 
the most important thing is to maintain the eligibility because, as I said, 39 states in the District of Columbia use that for other means-tested benefits, most importantly, uh, Medicaid. So if you lose your SSI eligibility, you lose your Medicaid eligibility, and that can be really a problem. In terms of the reduction, you know, it just depends on the individual situation. So if they're getting $400 in in-kind support, and that still maintains their eligibility and the trust can afford it, uh, it's not the end of the world. But the end of the world is losing the eligibility. So, and people don't really understand that, don't understand how critical it is to maintain the eligibility. And and, and that's, and I appreciate that because I want to point that out. I know, I know a lot of people are also concerned about the Medicaid eligibility. And as you pointed out, at least in Maryland, SSI gets you Medicaid. And then in many other states, they use yeah. that SSI eligibility. Right. right. Like I said, 39 states and the District of Columbia, if you're eligible for SSI, you're eligible for Medicaid, medical assistance. And that's really huge because leaving aside the medical insurance part of it, it also pays for all sorts of programs for people with special needs. So you just have to maintain that eligibility. Right. And, and and the programs, a lot, of, most Medicaid programs won't take private pay, right? So that even makes it more critical. And I and I think that's where a lot of people they hear the waiver, or they know their child's on an autism waiver or a DD waiver, but I don't think they necessarily connect the dots that it's funded by Medicaid. So you have to qualify right. for Medicaid. Right. Right. Just to uh, digress for a second, so uh, using Maryland as an example, so there's the autism waiver program. So the, the waiver part of that is this. Under 18, the parents' assets are deemed available for the children. And so therefore, in most circumstances, the, the child won't qualify. The waiver allows the state not to look at the parents' assets for this particular program but still the child can't have more than $2,000 in available assets. So, you know, it's just critical for people to understand that. Thank you. And, and when you have a trust, can you pretty much use it to buy anything you want? I mean, is there, is there limits? Is there restrictions? Well, okay. So I, you talked about first party trusts and third party trusts and, and we um, haven't really explained those that'll be coming, right. but yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so I'm going to explain those now because the spending is somewhat is a little different depending on the state. Third-party trusts, let me talk about those, are trusts that are funded with assets from everybody else except for the person with special needs. First-party trusts are funded with assets from the person with special needs, him or herself. They started out as allowing people who had been in automobile accidents, for example, still qualify for Medicaid. So in third-party trusts, pretty much anything can be purchased with the third-party trust. And of course, we talked about the in-kind support issue. So there's there you have to be careful about that, but that doesn't prohibit any, any particular expenditure. In first-party trusts, it depends on the state. For example, in, in Maryland, the first-party trusts have to be reviewed by the Department of Health before they are uh, executed. And there are some limitations on what can be used in the first-party trust. The point of the discussion, of course, is that third-party trusts are much better than first for people are much better than first-party trusts 
they provide more flexibility and less interference from outside parties. Well, and generally speaking, right, I mean, a first party trust in most cases shouldn't be necessary if people do their planning properly. That That's right. In most cases. Now, there are, as you know, for example, military retirement as of, uh, well, before four or five years ago, what's called the survivor benefit plan could not be paid to a trust. And uh, that was making a lot of children of, of service members ineligible. And Congress changed that, but that has to go to a first party trust. I have a situation now where I have a client who is in the railroad retirement system, which is a different system than Social Security. And I think for that, we need a first party trust, like with the SBP. So there are some discrete situations where a first party trust is needed. And then I've also had the situation where for reasons that were not really explained to me, the children with special needs had large uniform transfer to minors accounts. Those have to go into a first party trust to keep them eligible. You know, sometimes grandparents set things up and, and it's too large to transfer to an ABLE account. And then so, the other option, I don't see it too terribly often, but there's also the opportunity if there's child support for an adult child over the age of 18 yeah. as well, right? Correct. I, for, I forgot that. That's also, I think that's probably, along with the SBP, Survivor Benefit Plan, the, the most frequent use of first-party trusts. Since we're talking about first-party trusts, the other, the other big difference between a first-party and a third-party is Medicaid payback, right? Can you talk about yeah. that real quick? Yeah. yeah. So when Congress set these trusts up, it said that one of the provisions in the trust is that when the beneficiary dies, and if there's anything in the trust when the beneficiary dies, then Medicaid gets paid back dollar for dollar for what it's expended for the beneficiary. You know, the way I look at it is that it's a, it's a long, and there's no interest. So set up a first party trust for somebody who's 18 and they have an average life expectancy. It, they may live till 90 and Medicaid has to wait that long for money if there is any and there's no interest, it's still a pretty good deal. Right, and then with planning purposes, use, you know, use me as an example. My son has a third party trust, first party trust, and an ABLE account. Let's say I die, you know, now my son is getting the survivor benefit plan, as you pointed out, into the first party. My insurance goes to the third party. So if we wanna fund the ABLE account, it would make more, and we're getting a little deeper here, but just on the surface, it would make more sense take money out of the first party to fund the ABLE account first, right? Yes. Now, I want to clarify something for families. If my son, when my son dies, let's say there's $50,000 left in that first party trust, but Medicaid says he has used $200,000 in medical bill. They can only take that 50,000, right? Right. They uh, Just to be clear, they don't take it. It's your, It's the trustee's responsibility to find out and pay them because a lot of people when you start talking about Medicaid in all different contexts, have this view that somebody from the government comes in and just grabs their checkbook. And that's not, you know, and it, and it scares a lot of people, particularly, uh, I do some elder law planning and particularly on that side, but here too, and it's not quite, it's not like that. And 
also, if there's money left in the, the first party trust after Medicaid gets paid back, then it can be directed wherever you want. So who should get a trust? I mean, is it is it anybody and everybody with a disability? Is there is there a, a way to tell that, OK, I think I need a trust? OK, so my view on that is that I have no crystal ball. So I don't. Yes, there are for some some families. It's pretty clear that this child's not going to be independent and is going to need resources. And we have to distinguish between creating the trust and funding the trust. So in my view, it's it's better to create the trust than not need it, than need it and not have it. Because then we wind up, for example, there are situations where I I have a case now where there are three siblings, mom and dad are, the siblings are in their 50s and 60s, and mom and dad are passed, and the brother passed, and he left money to his sister with special needs, and we're going to have to put that in a first-party trust because there was no plan. Mom, mom and dad did no planning, and the brother did no planning. So it's much better to have the, have the trust created fund it minimally with the parents' money. And when I say minimally, I'm talking, you know, as small a balance as you can get away with at whatever institution, and then fund it on the second parent's death so that you have a much better idea of whether the child will need it. And if he or she doesn't, you can always change your documents and just let the trust collapse. So if I understand you correctly, it could be, it It doesn't hurt if you have a child with Down syndrome, you know the diagnosis typically before the child's born nowadays with testing. So you could set up the trust, you know, when the child's, you know, a couple months old. With autism, it might be a little more difficult because it might take a couple of years to get a diagnosis, but you can open up the trust after the diagnosis, right? Yeah. You know, and, and when we talk about the spectrum of special needs, we, we talk about people with developmental disabilities, but we also talk about people with emotional issues. For a lot of people with developmental issues, the path is reasonably clear when they're young, but with emotional issues, maybe not so much. So it's still important to have those trusts and then fund them, like I said, usually at the death of the second parent. Right. And then the same goes true with a physical disability or what have you. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Is there criteria? Do they have to meet the Social Security definition of disability to qualify for a special needs trust? Not for third-party trust. Uh, a third-party trust is is subspecies of a of what we call discretionary trusts. You could set those up for anyone, really. I often have clients whose children don't have special needs, except they like to spend a lot of money. Or the other situation is the parents aren't very happy with the child's choice of of spouse. And so we just do a discretionary trust for them. They don't have special needs and it doesn't have quite all the same language, but the concept is the same. For first party trusts, it's a little different. For example, again, in Maryland, it has to, re- and, and I think generally, it has to recite that the, that the beneficiary is disabled within the meaning of the Social Security Act. Again, that's what third party trusts are much preferable because you have much more leeway to do whatever you want. Well, and it highlights to me why you want to be talking to an attorney if you're even considering this. I mean, there's all kinds of pitfalls, it feels like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not a do-it-yourself job. So the last question I have about who who should have a trust is what if you have a family that maybe has two or three children with disabilities? Do they each need their own trust or do you, do you put it all in one 
Does it depend? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, so the answer is always it depends. <laughs> I personally, my, my prejudice, and, and I've done this, is for each person to have his or her own trust. And I go so far as to tell clients, you know, I, I think the most I've ever done is three. And I only, I said, I, I'm not going to charge you for the, I'll charge you for one, but not the other two, because I, I feel strongly that everyone should be treated as a discrete individual and, and shouldn't be lumped together. So I, I think it's it's better. Now, you know, granted, it may administratively be more difficult. I understand that. And it may be that whatever fees there are, are, are greater that way. But I just think it serves the person or the people much better. And, and again, I do that with um, families who just have, as a friend of mine said, plain kids, right? So, and they're all, and they're under 18. You know, some people just throw it into what we call a pot trust. But I don't think it's fair for, for one child to subsidize the other child's. One child wants to go to a state school and one child wants to go to a, an expensive private school. I don't think one should subsidize the other. I think everybody right. should. Right. Or if one child has more significant needs or, or yeah, what have you. Whatever. Right. So when you have a trust, you said one of the one of the responsibilities is trustee. And I'm sure many of the families have heard trust protector, trustee, co-trustee. You know, you mentioned yourself a you know, you could have a um, organization be the trustee. I try to tell people not to have family members be trustees by themselves, but I'd like to hear a professional point of view. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I have it. No, I, I I think that for me, if there's enough money, enough assets, the best solution is to have family member who cares about the the person and an institution. And so the family member can can focus on what does the person need. And the institution can do all the paperwork and, and make sure the taxes get filed and invest the money. And the family member has the, the um, ability to hire and fire an institutional trustee. To me, that's the best solution. But, you know, not everybody's in that position. Right. And, and to, give our, to give our viewers an idea, the institutions I've talked to are typically looking for trust with at least a million dollars. Generally, I, I've been able to do it at about 750, but you know the difference. I mean, to me, that's real money. To them, 250,000 is not is not a huge difference. But yeah, that that's that's the ballpark. You know, 800 to a hundred thousand to a million, probably. Now that's we haven't talked about how to fund the trust. So yeah, that's a whole different subject that I dive right, into. Right, right, but you know, I I try and get people to buy permanent life insurance to fund the trust. So if you buy a million dollar policy, then you don't, then the trust is going to have a million dollars and you meet the institution's minimum. Right. And then like you said earlier, if you have a payout after the second parent dies, so if you get a second to die policy, it's typically going to be less expensive. And we get in, we'll have a different video where I talk to a financial planner and in terms of the, the really big nuances of the planning, but it just shows that the trust isn't, once you set up a trust, you're not done. I mean, you still have to think about how you're going to fund the trust, who's going to manage the trust when you're gone. You know, there's just a lot. I mean, you've just you've just started, really. I mean, right, right. And the obstacle that that presents is that people just stop. They say, I can't figure this out, so I'm 
uh, stop, you know? Yeah. And it's scary because a lot of people believe that it's really expensive to get a trust. And I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's not inexpensive, but the cost of not setting one up can be even much, much worse. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. Yes. If you have the assets to fund the, or the potential assets to fund the trust, then it's relatively inexpensive. So I want to introduce the topic. I don't want you, I don't, we don't have to do a deep dive with you on it, but let's say somebody doesn't have a lot of money there. They can't get life insurance for whatever reason, but they still want, they still think they need a special needs trust. Could you touch briefly on what a pooled trust is? I'm going to do another interview with those, but. So a pooled trust is a trust run by a nonprofit organization which serves as both the trustee usually and usually the investment overseer if they don't invest the money themselves. And it's a way for people who, like you said, have limited assets to use those limited assets to to benefit the special needs child and protect means means tested eligibility. What, What they do is pool all the money together and then create separate accounts for each beneficiary. And there are pluses and minuses to that approach. And when you do your your longer video on it, I'm sure you'll get into those. But I want people to understand you still need an estate plan. You know, yeah. going to yeah, setting yeah, yeah. up a will trust doesn't eliminate the fact the need of a a will, durable power of attorney, and the other things that you typically provide. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, and you have to have somebody the pool trust have what are called adoption agreements. And you do have somebody review that because sometimes there's some nuances in there that may or may not be appropriate. Thank you. So as we wind down, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Anything that we want to make sure you get out there? Not to delve into cliches, but failing the plan is planning the fail, right? So, you know, a lot of people are intimidated about going to see lawyers. I understand that. A lot of people think it doesn't it costs too much money or they don't have enough money. You need to protect your child or children, particularly those with special needs. So really, failing the plan is planning to fail. Right. And then if if any of these on the screen, you can help people and families with all of these things, right? And I know uh, we didn't touch on all of this stuff because it would be right. a much longer video. I think it's important people know when you're talking about a special needs trust, very often you almost have to talk about medical directives, power of attorney, you know, because of the the age, you might be bringing up guardianship. I mean, there's just, yeah. it's not like you're, yeah. gonna go to, you're not going to go talk to you and say, Matt, I need a special needs trust. Where do I sign? Right. I mean, you, right. you, you do a little more. Well, I, you know, to, to be completely honest, I've had clients who do, who've done that. I, I don't think that's the appropriate way to do it, but they're the clients, so they get to make the final decision. But no, you need to you need to have a, an integrated or holistic plan. And, and, and you work so. with financial advisors and other professionals, right? right? I mean, if somebody yeah. has a financial advisor, you're more than happy to talk to the advisor with the client's permission. Sure, absolutely, and talk about ways to to you know, I'm I'm always learning some new things about ways to fund these trusts, and sure. Absolutely. And what's the best way to connect with you? Is it email? Is it phone? I have your website up here on the on the screen. But... Um, I, I think email is probably the best. Under the current circumstances, and for a little while, email is probably the best way to contact me. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you, uh, hopefully people watching this reach out to you. And like you said, you're D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Correct. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABCs of Disability Planning podcast. We invite your feedback and comments. Please feel free to leave a review wherever you are listening. And don't forget to hit like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you would like to connect, please email me, eric at specialneedsnavigator.us. If you'd like to learn more about or talk with a guest, please reference the show notes to find the best way to reach them.